Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Let's Talk Low Vision, brought to you by the Council of Citizens with Low Vision International. My name is Dr. Bill Takeshita, and this evening, we're very, very excited to talk about vacationing and traveling with low vision. Our guest this evening will be Mr. Ken Stewart, and he is en route to be on this call but we also have other panel members that are able to talk and share other helpful information regarding travel. Uh, we we have from, uh, is it Philadelphia? Lancaster. Oh, Lancaster, I'm sorry. Okay, so we have Ed Harris. And from Pittsburgh, we have Jana and Mike Gravitt. And from Buffalo, we have Kathy Lyons. Welcome, everybody, and thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, now one of the things that we often want to share are some of those tips and tricks that we have learned over the years with traveling. And I know that I I could just express for my own feeling is that when I first became partially sighted, I did not want to travel. I did not even want to go to the grocery store. I didn't want to leave my home because... I was so concerned that I may trip and stumble over something that I didn't see or that I would not recognize a person who might be calling my name. And I also worried that I may actually get sick from trying to get to that location. As as I was losing vision, any time that I was in rapid motion, like in a car, I would become so dizzy and so disoriented that I really began to get very, very motion sick. But as time went on, I realized that there were a lot of different ways that I could use low vision devices that would help me to see better and they would help me to be able to identify things that were very interesting in the world that we we live in. So... I'm going to begin tonight by first talking about what are some of those types of valuable devices and tips and tools that could help people who are partially sighted. Now, the first thing I do recommend is that if you are partially sighted, I do recommend that you consult with a low vision doctor. It might be a low vision optometrist or a low vision ophthalmologist, but these are doctors who are trained to be able to design and to prescribe different types of low vision devices that can truly improve your remaining vision. I know that for many, many people, they're not aware that even if you are partially sighted, that there are special tools that can improve your vision. I know that there's cases where people have just went to their doctors, and their doctors said nothing more can be done, and they have never sought out the expertise of a low vision doctor. But in reality, low vision doctors can do some very, very remarkable things that would help you if you're going to travel. Now, the first thing that I think about with traveling is being safe so that you're not tripping and falling. We do know that people with low vision are three times more likely to trip and fall and to break a bone And for this reason, I think it's very, very helpful that you have the appropriate tools to help you to see your best and to also use other tools that will make it easier for you to see where you're going when you're walking. The first thing that I have found to be very helpful 
would be a, a pair of prescription glasses that are really designed for walking. Many adults, especially those who are over the 40, have been wearing bifocal glasses, and bifocals are actually very, very dangerous if you have low vision and you're trying to walk. The reason is that if you move your eyes down to look at the ground for an obstacle, you often will then focus through the bifocal, and that's going to alter your depth perception. Believe me, I found this out really the very, very hard way, and I actually stumbled over one of those parking concrete little uh, steps that, that prevent the cars from rolling forward too much. And I thought that I really had more than enough space to step over it, but by looking through my bifocal, it altered my depth perception. So you want a pair of glasses that does not have the bifocal. Number two, a low-vision eye doctor will be able to modify the prescription so that you'll have your best vision. For example, many people who have macular degeneration they don't have central vision that is normal. And the low vision doctor will often prescribe glasses so that when you use your peripheral vision, your peripheral vision will be in focus and not your central vision. The doctors will also recommend the use of different colored sunglasses. Depending on the lighting situation, you may require... Uh, one of the things that we have found for many low-vision patients is that there are customized glasses that can be such that the lenses would be yellow or orange, and when the person goes into the direct sunlight, they will then turn brown or gray. And this will give the person that variation in lens color to improve their contrast and to also to reduce glare. So sunglasses, distance glasses, no bifocals are very, very helpful. And in some cases, you can also be fit with a telescope. These are called bi-optic telescopes, where there's a very tiny telescope positioned on the top of the lens, and this will be great so that you could then identify street signs, traffic signals, and if you're just walking and enjoying the sights, you will be able to see all of those sites in a very magnified view. I know that I, in particular, found it very, very enjoyable to walk with the bioptic glasses when I was traveling in Las Vegas to see all the new hotels and other types of scenes. I also used that when I was traveling in Japan because I was hoping that I would be able to somehow see the top of Mount Fuji and... Uh, Unfortunately, it's as usual in Japan, it's so cloudy, I was not able to see the top of Mount Fuji. Another thing that's also really helpful with walking is to be using a cane. If you have never been interested in using a cane, don't feel very, very embarrassed about that because most people with low vision do not want to use a cane. But if you do receive training by orientation mobility specialists, you will find that cane will soon be your best friend. And after you have even finished the cane training, you could then qualify to receive or apply to get a guide dog. And I know that the members of the panel here, many of them are using a guide dog. 
Now, one of the questions that one of our callers had asked was, if you are going to be traveling in an unfamiliar location, you're on vacation in a different country or a different state, how do you know where you're going, especially if you're very low vision or totally blind? And Kathy, can I ask you, how do you solve that problem of knowing where you're going or if you're trying to find a special place of interest when you're in an unfamiliar place? Well, Dr. Bill, I have an app on my iPhone called Blind Square, and it's an enhanced GPS. So it'll tell you what road or avenue route you're on, which direction you're traveling in, and it also will tell you things along the way. It'll point out a pharmacy or a hardware store or a restaurant, things like that. You can also target places. So if you want to Let's pick one, um, Dunkin' Donut. You can put that in this application, and then it'll sound an alert when you get there. Oh, that is fantastic. And is this something that is fairly affordable? And how you, you, you stated that yours is on your iPhone? Yes, it is. I believe you can also put it on an Android. I don't have one, so I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure you can. And um, the app was $30. Oh, that and, is very affordable. Yes. And I heard about it before I bought my iPhone, and I had them put it on my phone before I walked out of the store because I had heard what a valuable tool it is. So What's I wanted to make sure. <laughs> What's the name of it? It's called Blind Square. And I think it's made by Looktel, but I'm not sure about that part. Wow, that's a really nice recommendation. And one other thing that it, uh, it relates to the cell phones when you're traveling in different countries, one of the things that's very important is to consider purchasing a smartphone that is going to be unlocked. And what this can allow you to do if you have what's called an unlocked phone, such as an iPhone, is that when you go to many of these countries, you could purchase what's called the SIM card for that country, and you just simply insert it into your iPhone, and you could then make calls in that country at a very, very low rate. Whereas if you used your SIM card from the United States, there would be some very high roaming charges, or in other cases, you wouldn't even be able to get that type of connection. So how about for uh, you, Mike and Jonna, when you're traveling, what are some of the different complications that you you have encountered uh, when you try to travel to some different countries with your guide dog? Well, we went to the Bahamas two years in a row, and our first year there we decided to try and um, – use the Trekker GPS device that we had, which is older, but we decided to use it to uh, navigate the streets on our own and try to find places. It was fairly helpful, but I have to say that our second time around, we got in touch with a group called People to People, I believe that's the name of it, and they provided a sighted assistant to actually give us guided tours. And we actually spoke at the 
I think it was the uh, school for the, uh, school for the blind, and educated them on guide dogs. Oh, is that right? Were you invited to be the guest speaker at the School for the Blind? Well, originally we were just going to tour there, and I believe that uh, one of the teachers had asked us to speak. Uh, I'm not sure on all the details now. Wow. Um, now, now, how is it that uh, our, our listeners can arrange to schedule for that type of a, a tour guide? Go ahead, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Mike okay, Ed, well, you know? Mike? yeah, um, well, basically, I, uh, as part of our preparation for the trip, I just went to the uh, Bohemian webpage because I was just searching for general ideas because uh, I'm a big fan of planning. Uh, I believe you're going to, especially when you go somewhere that you're not familiar with, the best way to maximize your uh your your time spent there is to do your research ahead of time and to make a game plan. And during my research, I happened to run across this uh, this program that the Bohemian uh, Tourism uh, Organization had uh, had put together called People to People, where basically you fill out a form, give some basic information about yourself, your dates of travel, uh, sort of the relative. Uh, information as to why you're there and when you're going to be there and a little bit of personal information about your age or interests your uh uh things of that nature and then they based on your information match you with one of their uh citizens that live in the Bahamas to to arrange for you to have someone that actually lives there to to spend some time with you and show you around so so it was actually an accident that I ended up uh, finding this, just in my general uh, preparation for the for our time there. We were there, we were only there uh, in Nassau for a few hours as part of a cruise. So, uh, did, did you feel very comfortable trying to find your way around when it was just you and Jana, and you didn't have a guide though? No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would say particularly not. I think it's just because we had such little uh, experience with international travel. And then, of course, when you travel internationally, you really don't know the laws. Uh, you know, like you were stating, we, we didn't we didn't have an unlocked iPhone. We didn't have, uh, you know, usually when you're here in the United States, you run into a problem. You, you have that extra padded piece of security when you run into a problem, you can pull out your cell phone and make a phone call. Uh, there, we didn't have that extra piece of security. Uh, and the other thing we found, too, you know, is that their guide dogs aren't, didn't seem to be a part of the culture. Uh, I think I heard of one other guide dog user in the Bahamas, but, you know, really, we we kind of stuck out a little bit and and... You know, a few businesses we walked into said, "No, sorry, you can't come in without with, with your dog," which, of course, here wouldn't wouldn't happen in the United States. But there, you almost want to say, "Hey, you can't do that," but then you kind of do a double take, like, "Wait a minute, well, maybe you can." So, <laughs> but, but ironically, as a side note, um, the Bohemian government just passed legislation last year to open up businesses to service animals. 
Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, so then they do they do now have uh, that added piece of protection there in the Bahamas. So now, Ed, do you do you happen to find the same difficulty when you travel that there's many countries that won't accept your guide dog, or have you ever even experienced that here in the United States that? Certain certain places would not accept having your guide dog coming into their town or uh, their 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 uh, business. Well, I'm um, I'm not a guide dog user. Um, oh, okay. I do have I do have enough vision. Uh, I uh, I use a cane, um, and I find uh, that that is is very helpful. I do observe um, others using guide dogs. However, um, I um, I spent my junior year of college in Marburg, Germany. And uh, Marburg is a city that has quite a few services for the blind um, at their university there. And uh, Dogs are um, are used, and um, you know, so that okay, that that's really my limited you know experience with that. But uh, okay, and do you use a GPS system when you're traveling and you're vacationing, or do you have enough vision that you can orient yourself quite well and find your way around the town? Well, um. Do you use it a is, GPS system? I I don't at the at this time. That, um, that's okay. one of the things that um, I'm glad to hear about the uh, blind square and and some things because what I have tried in the past has been either too costly or cumbersome, you know, to really use effectively. So I'm glad that technology is getting developed and um, yes. Yes, I've also heard that uh, uh, Sendero has a, a nice GPS system for uh, the iPhone. So there's there's others that you could investigate and compare and contrast when you do get uh, your smartphone. And uh, it seems as though that Kathy is very pleased with Blind Square. So that's also a good way to get that kind of recommendation from actual users. Yeah, now, and I find I find just asking questions is uh, is important. Just um, sort of sort of like uh, what Mike was saying. Just that that might even be part of your preparation is to just try to try to be ahead of the ball game as much as you can. Even if you if if you're um, you just double checking, you ask a question about your location or you know um, where something is because. Things change, and and uh, um, you know, even if if something was in a particular location the last time you were there, maybe it changed, and it, it's just always good to be inquiring and uh, um, sort of investigative about. Yeah, it. I would agree. If you next time you come to Hollywood, California, and you're looking for something, that building's probably gone. They're they're remodeling all sorts of things, but. Uh, Ken, one of the questions 
that we had earlier before we were actually recording. But it was a question related also to guide dogs. And uh, Mike had the question, is there a particular organization here in the United States that could help people who own guide dogs to be able to, number one, understand which countries will or will not allow the guide dog uh, number two, which countries will quarantine your guide dog? And is there any particular way that they could help you to make it less paperwork? Because I understand that there could be a lot of paperwork that guide dog users have to go through if they're going to travel with their dog. So you're asking me? Yes, Ken. Yes. Yeah, uh-huh. I'm, not a, I'm not a guide dog user, but I have a hunch that if people go to whatever school, guide dog school, they got their guide dog from, that would be a good source of that kind of information. Okay, great. And, uh, Ken, thank you so much. I know that you had to rush to be here, um, but uh, would you be able to share with us some of the tips that you have regarding travel and vacationing? Sure, sure. And, yeah, I apologize, and my meeting ran later than I even thought it would be. But, yeah. Uh, one of the, the thoughts I had listening to other people with a very good uh, comments about the high-tech things is uh, I, I tend to think in terms of the low-tech uh, parts of it and like the discussion about whether or not you carry a white cane, a long white cane. Even with somebody that has enough vision that the long white cane is not important in terms of navigation, it's a very good way of letting other people know that your your vision is limited. I, in the book I write about, I think I gave the example, the silly story about the, the friend who has a uh, white cane that she often carries folded up, and she goes into a big grocery store or something, and she asks for directions, and they point. <laughs> We've all had that experience, I'm sure. They'll point somewhere instead of giving you the verbal information, and she'll wave her, her folded-up cane at them. <laughs> about that as if they're going to figure out that's a, that's a white cane, that a long white cane that's folded up. But letting the world know that you have limited vision, I think, is very, very useful, especially if you're in, in a, in a far-off place. And there are some areas in the world that have a reputation of being particularly responsive to uh, people with vision impairments. I remember when uh, I was traveling with a friend in Europe, and the first time I experienced what we now call accessible pedestrian signals, where it beeps uh, to let you know when the walk sign is on, was in Vienna, Austria. And, and a lot of the European, uh, Western European uh, countries have been, you know, were ahead of us in terms of doing things like that to, to make uh, navigation on the public streets uh, easier. But, but you know, letting other people know that uh, you don't see everything. And I, another example I uh, give in the book is that <clears throat> when you're at a bus stop, and you're, this is in terms of locals, when you're in, this, in a city and there's a local bus stop where there's uh, several different routes to stop there, when the bus, a bus stops and you're not sure if it's the M11 you want or the M18 that you don't want, you don't say to the bus driver, is this the M11? Because if he doesn't realize you're low vision, he may shake his head. And you don't want that. So you don't ask yes or no. Avoid asking yes or no questions is the general point. You say, which bus is this? Then he has to say either M11 or M18. You can't just 
answered yes or no. That's a very good uh, suggestion. And when you travel, uh, Ken, what are ways that people who may have very low vision and are traveling alone, what are ways that they would be able to find their way uh, in an airport or in a bus station? If they don't know their way around, how could they find their way to their gate if they're all by themselves? What are some suggestions you have for that? Well, again, the same same theme that I was talking before, and that is let people know about your limitations. For example, when I call an airline ahead of time to make my reservation, I let them know, you know, I will need uh, assistance at the airport. And I find that most airlines are very good about you know, keeping track of that, having that on your record. So as soon as I walk in and check in, they know that, that I'm going to want an, a decided es- escort and an assistant to, to lead me to the uh, the gate. And often, uh, we probably all have the experience where you, all you want is somebody they can walk along with and they show up with a wheelchair. <laughs> so it's, Put it's your so, bag on it. <laughs> yeah, if you don't want that. Then, <laughs> yeah, put your bag a, on it. That's a good idea. <laughs> I need a will an escort, walking escort. And and another that reminds me of another point that I think I make in my chapter in our book, that when you're making a, a reservation on the telephone with an air, airline, typically nowadays they <clears> want <throat> people to do that stuff on the web because it's cheaper for them. So some uh, typically there's a $25 extra charge for booking over the phone, but... You can have that waived if you tell them, you know, I have a disability and, and that can be waived. They'll, they'll, they, they won't charge you that extra $25. How do you verify that they have eliminated that fee? Or how do you know if they are going to charge you that extra 25 Is that something that is quite regular that yeah. most airlines or different agencies do charge that $25 automatically? I think it is typical nowadays, but you know, you know, you ask specifically what. In fact, you know, when I'm booking a, 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 a uh, flight, I ask very specifically what the dollar amount is because the fare often varies from flight to flight. If the flight's almost full, they're going to be charging you more, maybe than a flight that they're trying to get more people on. So I always ask specifically what's the exact dollar amount for that flight, and if I go earlier, is it cheaper, and so forth. So I have that specific dollar amount. So then when they're finished doing the booking, they said, okay, that's going to be, you know, $463 plus the $25 uh, booking fee. I said, oh, no, sorry, you've got to waive that because I'm blind and I couldn't go on the, the website. So I, in my dialogue with the person that's booking me on the phone, I always keep track of the dollar amount so I can tell whether or not they're adding it on or not. That's very good. And, and uh, Ken, do you have any particular types of recommendations that could help our our listeners to be able to find really good deals, you know, discounted tickets if it's going to be on a cruise or if they're going to be on getting an airfare. What are particular recommendations you have that we might be able to find some of these discounts? Uh, Okay. I don't know much about these uh, cruises, but in terms of airlines, the airline fares vary. Every, on every flight, or that depending on when you're booking it, and some people think that the earlier you book, the better, and that's not always the case. JetBlue, I think, is the exception. I think JetBlue wants to encourage people to book book early, and so their 
it's a, I understand it's, it's very predictable that their prices for a particular flights get higher and higher as you get closer to the de departure date. But most airlines vary those those fares from week to week, and I think I read that once that Tuesdays and Saturdays tend to be the days when they they make some adjustments in, in a lot of their flights in terms of the, the fares. So, so they're, they're constantly tweaking them. And I just recently read an article that said that between 50 days ahead of time and – I'm sorry, yeah, 50 days ahead of time and 100 days ahead of time tends to be the best time to book. In other words, not too early and not too late. But it does vary from airline to airline, and so the best advice is just to keep calling around <laughs> – and don't you know, don't don't jump at the first one you find. You know, look some more and then check back with them the next Tuesday afternoon or whatever. Now, Mike, how have you been able to get these email alerts? I know you were telling me that sometimes Southwest Airlines send you email alert to let you know that hey, they're having a sale. Uh, but typically, whenever you have any sort of communication with the airline electronically or, or even by phone. Uh, you could always uh, seem to have a, a, a place where you can enter your email address and check off an option to receive email alerts about uh, promotions or sales. Uh, I know I receive promotions from from Southwest just from booking a flight, and I had that option to receive email alerts. I'm not too familiar with the other airlines. I imagine they do something similar, though. Uh, but Southwest is sort of a strange uh, airline in a way because they don't ever associate with other third-party companies like travel agencies like Priceline or or Travelocity or uh, Expedia. They, the only way you can purchase a ticket through Southwest is directly from them, whereas the other airlines typically participate in these third-party companies. And so... You know, I always recommend if you're going to book a flight, especially if you're going to a destination where Southwest goes, uh, in, a, in addition to checking the price lines, the Expedia's, always check directly on the Southwest webpage. Because that's the only way you're going to find one of their fares. Oh, uh, great. I don't know if it's still the case, Mike, but it used to be that they wouldn't even give you a seat assignment ahead of time. It's like a mad rush when when you're getting on the plane. And right. I, I think maybe they do. Do they respect the people with disabilities, giving them priority to get on first, like most airlines do? Oh, they have to. I think every. I think that's. Uh, uh, I think that's mandated. Yeah. So I've I've always pre-boarded. Well, I've only taken Southwest a time or two, but I've always pre-boarded. So. Yes, I have found that with every airline that I have taken, that uh, they have allowed me to pre-board and. They've even let me board before the little children. <laughs> so I thought that was, you know, very, very nice. And uh, having having those people who help to guide you, you know, to your gate to get onto the airplane. And when you do get off the airplane, they, they do escort you if you want to go to uh, the ground transportation or you want to catch a shuttle or a taxi. Uh, they're very, very helpful. Yeah, now, Jana, you me. had mentioned, Jana, that you often use Priceline to find some great deals for vacationing? No, just for airfare. Oh, for airfare? Mm-hmm. Okay. That's the only thing I've ever used it for. Okay, and when those uh, airfares are on there, those are from airlines that are usually 
not including Southwest. In other words, Southwest would not have ticket prices in, in there. Is that correct? correct? Correct. Okay, great. Ken, what other kinds of tips do you have? we got about 10 more minutes left. Yeah, and you're reminded of coming off the airliner that I tend to uh, travel with stuff on my back and not, not checking baggage. Uh, and the airline's pretty good about allowing me to have a very big backpack and, and then also a, a waste pack that I can get on the plane with. But for people that are checking baggage, I think it's always good to have something very conspicuous on your luggage that makes it distinctive. So if somebody else wants, so there's a sighted person nearby, they say, gee, can I help you find your bag? It says, yes, yeah, it's, a, it's a, a big pack with a very large blue label on it, something that's visually distinctive, not just necessarily for you to find, but for somebody, some sighted person that wants to help you find your bag. That's great. That's a good idea, Ken, because I know sometimes we're waiting a long time at the carousel to try to find that type of luggage. And I, I, you probably talked about it already earlier in the program, but when you're going to a, a far-off city, the more research you do ahead of time, the better in terms of where things are, like a major museum or something, because there's so many major organizations that do give preference to people with disabilities. And sometimes you can take advantage of that by you know, planning ahead or contacting them or have a special person watching out for you, or they'll, they can make uh, accommodations. There are a lot of accommodations that are possible to do your research ahead of time. Yes, I've had many patients uh, who are low vision, and they took their cane, and when they went to some of these plays or they went to concerts, they were given preferential seating simply because of the vision impairment. And uh, they didn't even ask for it, and they were just so thankful to be able to have that type of preferential seating. Now, when you are in a country where English is not the primary language and you are not able to specifically communicate very well where you want to go, how how do you recommend that you do that? Kathy, when you travel, I know you travel to many different countries, how do you communicate with them if you want to go to a particular hotel or a location of interest but they don't really understand what you're saying, and you don't speak their language. The entire world speaks uh -huh. English, and so it's usually not a problem. But I happen to speak a little bit of Spanish, and I speak French pretty well. So when I was in Mexico, I tried to communicate in Spanish when I could, um, but they will still understand English. So I remember when I went to Mexico one time, and they asked me who was who I was traveling with. And when I told them I was alone, um, soy sola, they couldn't believe that a blind person would travel by themselves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I was meeting a group there. But uh, so what I had to do once I got through security was to get to the place where the van or the limo or whatever it was was going to come and meet people that were going to that same resort. So it was kind of iffy in the beginning, you know. Will you meet other people? Will there be people there? One time I had to go to the government office with the paperwork for the dog, and the people that were on the plane with me that were going to the resort left without me. And so I just had to trust that somebody would be coming back. And I had a little conversation with the guy. I told him I was thirsty, and he said, oh, have a beer. 
<laughs> Is that right? Yes. <laughs> That's I was great. more interested in water, but... <laughs> oh, gosh, I love that. Was there beer for the dog, too? <laughs> <laughs> I can't think of anything worse than a drunk guy dog. <laughs> Another small point, uh, Bill, you mentioned in terms of going to some place where they may not be able to understand your English is if it, if it can have the name of the hotel or the resort or the particular target you're going to be asking for written down by somebody who knows how to write it in that, that language and you just have it on a piece of paper, show them a piece of paper and read it off the paper. Ah, uh, yes, that's very, very good. I know that when we were in Japan, and uh, this, I was very surprised in Japan that I really thought more people would speak Japanese, but we were perhaps in a suburb and uh, they didn't understand what we were saying. And we finally resorted to the point where we went and we found a booklet of postcards. And when we wanted to go to a particular place in that city, we would flash him the picture on that postcard. Yep. And that, that was the way we were able to get by. And it, it was it was really kind of interesting because there really was a major communication gap and it was strictly visual. And so it may be that if you do identify photographs of places that you do want to go to and you could label them in large print or in Braille and then you could simply show the driver uh, where it is that you'd like to go. Uh, Ken, do you have any other last suggestions that make it a, a meaningful and beneficial travel vacation? Uh, I don't think I do. Thanks for asking. I have oh. one. Oh, thank South, you. Kathy? Southwest does not charge for baggage. Oh, yeah. A lot of the airlines do, but that's one that doesn't. Even, and, even, even the additional luggage, or are you just talking about the carry-on? Um, you can check two bags with Southwest. If you go over two bags, you'd have to pay for the third one. Oh, wow, that is great. I didn't know that. And I was traveling with uh, U.S. Airways one time, and I put a bag through that I had carried on my way going one way, and coming back I wanted to check it. They were going to charge me for it. The first bag was $25, and the second one was 35 Oh, gosh. And I mentioned that it had medical equipment in it, and I said, oh, medical? No charge. Oh. I travel with a, a BiPAP machine, which is similar to a CPAP. So it pays to speak up and say what you have and uh, suggest that maybe it shouldn't be charged because it's medical, for example. One more thing about baggage is you can also take an extra bag for your dog. Right. Yeah, anytime we travel, um, if you put only your guide dog-related uh items in a separate bag, such as dog food, grooming tools, et cetera, um, they cannot charge you to check that bag as long as it's only items in that bag related to your service animal because they look at that as medical-related, similar to right. them not being able to charge you for checking a wheelchair, for example. Oh, that's a really great, great bit of information. Gosh, that is wonderful. Well, I hope that everybody has found all this type of information provided by Ken and all of the panel members here very healthy. And uh, this information, along with other very, very helpful information, is available 
in the book that is produced by CCLVI, and the book is called Insights into Low Vision. In this book, there are chapters that are related to many aspects of living with low vision, and this book is available in large print, and it's also available in audio format. And if you're interested in that, you could then purchase it at Amazon.com. And you can simply also join CCLVI if you're not a member, and you may receive a free book for all new members. So, again, uh, Ken, thank you very much for the very helpful information tonight. And all the members of the panel, thank you all very, very much. Yes, and also, uh, Mr. Dick Burden, I'd like to thank you very, very much for recording this show. So this will be up on the CCLVI website at www.cclvi.org and also on the Airs LA website at www.airsla.org, along with all of the other podcasts that we have recorded over the past years. So we hope that you tune in next month and join us. And until that time, we say good night, so long, and happy traveling.